In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. I have an amazing guest here with me today. Dave, how are you? Doing great. How are you, Pam? I'm doing lovely. Dave is joining us up from Maine, and he's just radiating and having an amazing day. And I'm just like pumped to hear all about his story because he seems extremely humble. And I know there's a huge and amazing story behind him, and I can't wait to get into it today. So I'm pumped about that. So Dave, thank you so much for being here today. Well, that great introduction is going to make it hard to be humble, but I, I will I will continue to try. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's such an honor, Dave. And like, speaking of your story, you know, like you've had a tremendous journey to where you are today. And, you know, what inspired you to basically be where you are today? If you will. Loaded question. Yes, I know. Yeah. It's always the best starting point. <laughs> yeah. So many different things. And I'll touch on a few of them. But I think the number one thing that I could probably point to was impending parenthood, you know, in my case, fatherhood, where, you know, I had been pretty content to not kind of turbocharge the financial side of my life up until, you know, age, let's see, you know, 31 or two, you know, when my wife got pregnant with our first child well, five years ago, you know, I really decided I have to do a little more than what's been enough for me now, because we'll be, you know, a family and I want to be able to travel and pay for college and do these different things. And just getting by is not enough anymore. And even though, you know, I'm lucky to have family that have taken great care of me and, and would probably help whenever help was needed. I still wanted to do those things for myself on my own. And I did not have the means to do that six years ago, let's say. So uh, I had been a stock market kind of investor and very successful at that. But if you're just investing your savings from a summer job, you're not going to like retire early, you know? So, you know, I decided I needed to look in other places and I'd always thought about real estate and I'd been introduced to real estate, I guess, in college when I took a class called building the eco house. And it was all about the connections between architecture and the environment, global warming, energy efficiency, renewable energy, all these things just kind of, you know, were light bulbs in my head. Um, and I liked that class so much that I got paid to take it the next two years as a teacher's assistant. So I basically had to take it three times. But by the end of it, I was really jazzed about the ability of the built environment to kind of change the world and make people happier and healthier and the planet happier and healthier. But I didn't exactly know how. And I was thinking maybe I'll become an architect or I'll build green roofs, which I had done there, or do something in renewable energy. However, my you know other major was Latin American studies, and I had just been down in Bolivia. I had met this wonderful young woman. We had started dating, and as I went to graduate, I was like, you know, I better go back down and kind of pick that relationship up and see where where it was going. And so I was down there for the better part of the next four years, and came back here. Decided I needed to go to business school because we had started a chain of uh, stores down there in Bolivia together. My wife and I, or my then girlfriend, then fiance, now wife. So yeah, we had this chain of camping and bookstores and 
got to the point where I had 10 employees and a spider web of Excel spreadsheets and stuff. And I had taken all of one econ class in my whole life and I kind of fought it when I took it. So I was not a natural, but in a way we all kind of are natural to business. You know, the, the buy low, sell high concept is not a tough one to understand. So, you know, business school was great, but I realized all I, I really needed from that was like accounting, you know, the confidence to know what a profit and loss is and the P&L and balance sheet and all these things. So that was nice. And I, I went into the nonprofit sector because you know I'm bilingual, fluent in Spanish and English. So worked for a nonprofit called Safe Passage that helped kids in Guatemala uh, who live in the garbage dump actually go to school get their education. So that was really rewarding. After almost four years there, you know, I'd really gotten turned on to the fundraising side of the nonprofit world because I was like, wow, this is the engine that makes the whole bus go. And with another million dollars, I mean, I could literally save lives, <laughs> literally. So it's just really exciting. And, and I took that, went to Bowdoin College, you know, worked in fundraising there for five years. But, you know, fairly soon after that, um, you know, we had had our first child and I had gotten into real estate and I'd started just by partnering with family who they had money, but no time or, or expertise. And I had spent the last year, you know, listening to podcasts like yours and, you know, reading books and networking, you know, with people to kind of learn about real estate investing. So I was finally feeling ready to do something. And uh, we took on a small single family house, you know, as our first investment. I spent a ton of time, you know, with a residential broker trying to find the right house and, you know, we finally found one that I thought the numbers were good and maybe it had the potential to split off an extra lot. And, you know, we bought that, you know, just partnering where they put in the money because I didn't really have any. <laughs> and I did all the effort and time and work, you know, involved with it. Uh, and I managed the tenants and fixed, I mean, I was literally, you know, in the tenant's house, banging on floorboards and setting mouse traps and doing all the things that, you know, property managers do. So uh, it was a good hands-on experience. It went well enough that, you know, we decided to, to keep going. And so I then bought a three unit building, which just incidentally had a commercial tenant on the first floor. I didn't want commercial tenants. I was, I thought residential was like the only way to go. And I had kind of gotten to that idea of 50 single family houses gets you the same thing, but through a heck of a lot more work as a 50 unit building. And there's pros and cons to each, but there's, you know, maybe more economies of scale, you know, if you go into apartments and, and larger you know, buildings. So the three unit introduced me to commercial and I suddenly was the landlord for an engineering firm. And my broker was like, oh, you could do a triple net lease with them. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> and he's like, they'll pay your taxes and insurance. I was like, no, you would do that. And he's like, yeah. I was like, really cool. Like residential tenants don't do that. So it was a neat, you know, kind of eye-opening experience, another kind of hands-on, you know, experience with landlording. And, and from there I kind of took off, you know, and found a deal that was 17 residential units, you know, again, partnered with family on that and then partnered to buy nine units with a former coworker, you know, who had been my boss's boss's boss at the college and had left, but loved business. We were having a beer one time. I kind of said, oh, I got these bunch of good deals, you know, and I had three good deals on the table and I, I wish I had bought all three, but I just, I, we didn't have the interest. My parents wanted to slow down. He's like, well, the other one's a good deal, right? I was like, yeah, it's a really good deal. He's like, well, let's buy it. I was like, yeah, I don't have any money. He's like, that's okay. I'll, I'll do the money part. You do the work. And I was like, okay, great. So that's kind of how I took off and eventually got into, you know, syndication where I'm putting together, you know, larger groups of family, friends, friends of friends, that kind of thing, you know, to buy and, you know, maintain larger buildings and always kind of trying to fix them up, add some value, you know, make the world a nicer place, make the building a nicer place and not just treat it like an ATM machine. But um, yeah, we, uh, I started a property management company because, I started managing the first few buildings myself, 
pretty quickly, you know, I had a full-time day job at a pretty serious institution that I had to take care of as number one priority, you know, healthcare, daycare, all these golden handcuff kind of things that kept me, you know, my butt in the seat, so to speak, of fundraising, even though after a year or two, the luster, you know, kind of wore off and I realized, man, I'm not super happy being an employee and at a desk job. <laughs> it just isn't my hunter-gatherer kind of nature to, to want this setup for the rest of my life. And, you know, the more I learned about real estate, the more passionate I got about it. And it just led me to take that path. But while I had the day job, I needed property management. So when I bought, you know, the 17 units and the nine, I kind of inherited a property manager from those, you know, and I was like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just let him keep doing it. And after the course of about nine months, I decided, yeah, it's actually pretty broke. And I was kind of an A and sometimes B student, you know, and I felt like we were just getting like D's and C's and F's sometimes, you know, just like there were things happening that like, well, I feel like if I was in charge, this wouldn't have gone this way. Or, you know, it's frustrating where it's like, no, no, I've handed it off, but I'm finding myself kind of drawn back into the kitchen to work with the cooking because I don't like how they're doing the recipe, you know? So I was like, okay, I need to professionalize. So I gave my, at that point, 34 units to a professional property management company, you know, in our local town, thinking that was like the answer to my problem. And lo and behold, I was still going to get C's and D's and some B's and A's, but, you know, it just wasn't the scorecard, you know, that I was looking for where I felt like all tenants were really respected, that vacancies, we just jumped on them aggressively, marketed them, God forbid, before the person even leaves. I mean, none of them would do that. None of them ever marketed stuff before the vacancy occurred. They'd wait until someone left then they maybe take another few days or a week, then they'd throw it up on Craigslist. And then I'd feel like, oh, and maybe they're filling their own units first or different ones. And it was, you know, it was just not the most satisfying experience. So I listened to a lot of podcasts, had a friend who was doing syndication and he really turned the light bulb on for me in property management by saying, you know, cause I knew that it wasn't really a profit center and you know, it's a lot of hard work as you know, very yeah. well. And he said, you know, the reason we manage our own buildings is not, you know, for the money it, it's for risk management because now like you really can control the risk very well. You know, if you want to fill those units, you can fill them by pricing them right and doing it quickly and getting right on top of stuff. And those are really the drivers of, of your profit. If you're going to have a full building with, with happy tenants who stay, they'll stay longer on average. They'll pay more than average. They'll, you know, the world is your oyster. Whereas if you have a, a grumpy property manager, who's unresponsive half the time, stuff's not going to go as planned, you know, financially. So that led me to partner with my best friend for my MBA program, who was looking at a job at that point. And I was kind of like, I think this can kind of be a job. Like, why don't we start a company together and I'll pay you, you know, a little extra at first. And then once we really get it going, you can give me a discount on my units and we'll, we'll go ahead. And, you know, we've now got four employees and, you know, we're up in the hundreds of units and we're, we're having a great time. It's been a journey. <laughs> wow. What a journey that you've had. So thank you so much for sharing all that. So amazing. And there's so much I want to unpack throughout all of that. Now, my question to you is, and I love seeing the response to this, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What comes to mind, you know, being, you know, uh, a little boy, middle-class from Maine, I think a uh, firefighter, oh, baseball player, definitely professional baseball player. Astronaut was probably in that mix at one point, you know, maybe doctor for a little while, mostly baseball player, you know, and I played really hard up through junior high, but there were two things that set me off that course to digress a little from real estate. One of which was I learned that just like, you know, pretty much every family member on either family tree, I was going to be nearsighted and needed glasses. And so that impacted the play a little bit. It just made it kind of awkward. And then I was a lefty. I batted left. 
And that meant that the, you know, pitchers in junior high and high school tended to hit me a lot <laughs> with the ball. <laughs> and I had one time where this, you know, big pitcher threw this crazy fastball, which, you know, back then was like 70 or something miles an hour, but being very close, you know, it was coming right at my waistline. So I jumped up in the air to avoid it, smacks me right above the knee. I go to the doctor, no broken bones. It was just a bruise the size of the ball. But he said, if that had been two inches lower, it would have shattered your kneecap. And, you know, you might not have been walking right for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to look at other sports now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. So I kind of chickened out. I chickened out of baseball. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, those balls come fast. So I don't blame you. I don't blame you. That's interesting. And like, so what inspired you on your journey to like want to go down to Bolivia though? Because I find that super yeah. interesting. Like how did that trajectory play out? Yeah. So I had taken Spanish classes when I was, you know, high schooler in Maine. Didn't make much use of it. You know, I got good enough grades, but you forget what you don't use pretty quickly. In college, I, I went on a delegation down to uh, Nicaragua with a, a nonprofit to go inside and learn about and teach about sweatshops, you know, which was a huge issue, you know, in the early 2000s and frankly still today. And so we learned about them and, and went inside them and met, you know, workers and met managers. And, and, you know, it was a whole different world. And it was very fascinating to me and, you know, important, I thought, and, and let me use my Spanish in a way that was different than just kind of ordering off a menu and, you know, doing stuff in class. So that kind of got my wheels turning. I studied abroad in Guatemala and Guatemala is a majority indigenous country. Um, and was just fascinated by the dynamics going on there, the politics, the history, the economics. Came back to Minnesota, where I was in college at Carleton College, and organized a trip during spring break that would uh, go to two different Indian reservations and do like volunteer work and the same kind of thing, kind of learning about some of the issues and challenges you know that their communities were up against, and found really significant challenges and issues that you know make the U.S. like not such a first world country. And you know if you if you go in places like that and see the kind of poverty that exists on reservations, uh, it's really crushing and, and sad. But at the same time, it was also incredibly inspiring, the strength of the people, the spirit they had to resist. You know, they were in to resist long before uh, any, you know, protesters that are alive today. So it's part of their DNA, I think, at this point to be warriors. And so on Pine Ridge Reservation, Kota Reservation in South Dakota, uh, they had started a microfinance organization to do, you know, small business loans to entrepreneurs on the res and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is actually kind of transformative. This is very different than the, like, I was literally eating government cheese. Like it was a joke about government cheese. Like I've had government cheese, you know, it comes in a big rectangular orange block, you know, and it was getting off that kind of treaty mentality where like we're owed you know, these benefits, which they literally are. I mean, our government agreed to them in perpetuity, unlike, you know, Social Security or Medicare. Yeah, constitutionally, we have an obligation to give that. But, you know, they wanted to rise up, you know, by their own bootstraps and had just been pushed down economically for so long. But this was kind of finding a way to make those sort of things happen. So it was really fascinating to me. I came back and worked there for a summer at the Lakota Fund, you know, just kind of as an intern, just kind of doing whatever needed to be done, learning about the culture. And that's why I got interested in Bolivia, because it was the only other majority indigenous country, you know, in the Americas outside of Guatemala. And I hadn't been there. So, and then I learned about microfinance and it turns out Bolivia is actually the birthplace of microfinance where it all first started. Now, uh, Bangladesh and the Grameen Bank get a lot of credit, but Banco Sol started independently in the same year, 1983, when I was born in Bolivia. So 
they share it 50-50 in my opinion. So went down there, you know, did like research my thesis about Bolivian microfinance and kind of the cultural impacts that it has. And that's why I went there. So long-winded story. <laughs> oh, cool. No, I love that. I love that so much. And then like to go there and basically start a business after I think is so cool. Cause you know, there's people that won't even start businesses in the U S so you're just like, I'm just going to go to a different continent. So I mean, that's brave. <laughs> I guess it is in retrospect. I didn't feel like it at the time. I, I was just after, you know, love. <laughs> Business was just a way to keep us busy and, and with money coming in. But it's funny. I tell people, you know, working in Bolivia, you know, in a very bureaucratic, you know, former Spanish colony environment with lots of rules and laws and regulations, but also, you know, a very poor country where most people don't follow all those laws and rules and regulations. It's both like the freest and the most constrained business environment possible. And so when you're small and you're just, you know, an entrepreneur on the street, you know, or in a market, like it's the most free ever. It's it's pure red-blooded capitalism at its finest. There's no taxes whatsoever from anyone for any reason for anything. You just pay you know, 10 Bolivianos to the vendor and they keep the 10 and, you know, they sold, they bought them for six or seven and they're keeping three. And it's a very clean thing because uh, they're not paying taxes, even though they technically should. So when we went to get, you know, our certificate of like foundation, you know, from the Alcaldia, from the mayor's office, you know, I was expecting to jump through a lot of hoops, like a lot of the other things I'd been through to like get my visas and stuff. And they were like, oh, where's your business located? And I was like, well, we don't have a location yet. I mean, I want to get permission you know, like a good American, get all my licenses in order before I start. And they were like, well, you can't get a license without a business. Go rent a place, open a business, and then come back to us and get your license. I was like, okay, <laughs> I can just go and start. And they're like, yeah, just go and start. Come back later. I was like, oh, great. Awesome. And so I just went and started. I just went and rented, you know, a, a room, basically a glorified room, you know, on a street in a building and started up a store and came back to them and said, okay, I'm in business. I opened. Can I have my permit now? And they're like, yep, here you go. Five bucks. Okay. Off you go. So yeah, there's some ways that it's very free. But when you start registering with all the different uh, ministries and, and it, it actually gets very, very burdensome to the point where it's crushing. And it's unfortunate because when you put too much regulation onto a system, it forces first a trickle, then a flood of people to work around that system and work illegally through bribes, through favors, through all these negative things that happen that we stereotype in third world countries. So I think there's like a happy mix of regulation where it's like not too little, not too much. You know, you, you can't just go out and do nothing and pay no taxes, but you're able to run a profitable business uh, without being sort of overburdened. Interesting. Interesting. And then from that, you went to pretty much like a corporate job and then corporate job, you went into real estate now, because I know those golden handcuffs I've heard a lot about, right? What was your aha moment and how did you transition? Because there's so many people that I know are listening that may be right there and just like scared to make the jump. Like they know that they'll be so much happier on the other side, but it's like, what really inspired you to make that transition over into the real estate front? And, you know, how did you do it? You know, some yeah. petrified to do so, you know? Yeah, I, I knew I had to. I just didn't know the timeline. And I think a lot of people are in that situation. They're like, oh, I know I have to change, but I, I, I'm not quite sure when I can achieve that. And maybe they have a plan. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's about saving. For me, a couple factors. You know, one is that I went and got my real estate broker's license while I was still employed, you know, at Bowdoin, because I had worked with a buyer's agent when I was making these investments, who was a really great guy and kind of a mentor, really thoughtful. And, you know, I'd kind of, and he had kind of run the idea by me a year or two back. And I had kind of said, oh, maybe someday we'll see. And then I was like, you know, that's not a bad idea because I don't think I want to wait 
until I have enough passive income. Because yeah, it's great that I have these 34 units. I'm getting, you know, like a thousand or two a month and, and still investing most of the money back into them. You know, that's the thing is I, I'm not just taking everything out and leaving the buildings, you know, as is. I'm, I'm fixing them up and improving them. So that, you know, dampens your passive income a little bit. So I didn't want to wait until I had enough passive income to quit and, and retire. I knew that I needed active income to replace the W-2 jobs active income. And so that's where the broker idea occurred to me. I was like, it's in real estate. I'd be learning a lot by helping other people do deals. You know, I'd be learning the market and the prices and, and it'd be super helpful for me as an investor, you know, as a property manager to also be a broker and be helping people. And, you know, I'll do that for five or 10 years or however long I do it. And then I'll probably transition out of that because it's still active income where if you stop working as a broker, the money stops coming in in commissions. <laughs> Very one-to-one uh, -one connection. There, So, you know, it's not as though I'm retired in any way, even though at this point, yes, I could retire from being a broker and still, you know, keep food on the table and that kind of thing. But, you know, I like it. I don't want to retire. I, I enjoy working. I'm seeking the right balance. But at the college, you know, I was sort of passed over for promotions and, and climbing the ladder because, you know, corporate institutions can be slow moving. But I mean, academia is like glacier speed compared to corporate America. So, you know, if I had hung out for another five or 10 years, I'm sure I would have uh, more pay, you know, 30 or 50% more salary than I had there, which was enough to get by. You know, I was very happy in my, you know, mid fifties kind of salary range. It's enough, you know, but I'm looking back at it. And I thought at the time when I quit, I, I thought, you know, it's going to start slow and finish strong, but I think, I think there's a good chance that I'm going to realize just like a lot of entrepreneurs have that I was costing myself a ton of money by staying in that W2 job. And sure enough, the first year, you know, I, I earned about triple what I did the year before, and now I'm on track for like 10 X. And it's like, yeah, I was costing myself a lot by being in that job, but it was what I needed at the time. You know, it, it, everyone goes through a progression in life. And I don't think I don't regret, you know, any of the times and like my first nonprofit job, I, I think I started at 32,000 a year and I was working like 55 hours a week. So, you know, you, you got to pay your dues in life. You, you don't, you can't just, you know, get something for nothing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, you know, transitioning into the real estate game, because you no, know, I always tell people it's never, you know, real estate's great. It's glorious. It's an amazing industry. It's so dynamic. You could do so many different things within the realm. But of course, there's challenges in the first few years, the first three to five years, I think of any business, but especially real estate is when you learn the most lessons. I mean, you're always continuously learning, but it's like the toughest through there. So what were some of like your biggest challenges and how did you sort of overcome those hurdles? I think a big challenge, you know, starting out in real estate was just not having clients, you know, and, and, you know, people talk a lot about deal flow. I'm, you know, for deals that I'm going to acquire and buy myself. I mean, I feel like I can't really do more than two or three or four a year at most. Cause it's just, there's a lot to it. It's, it's kind of exhausting to buy a property. You know, you, it, it, there's a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot if you're going to do it right. So I didn't have many clients in the beginning and, and I just, you know, went out networking and I, I kind of got enough to come along. My wife was, was working and still is. So we had a little bit you know, of income from that source as well. But I, I think I started a meetup group and that has led to some fabulous friendships and connections that have led to you know, relationships as a broker that are you know, paying off now, basically. So you know, I think connecting with other people, you know, any business is a people business, but obviously you know, real estate is particularly a people business. So you can't just sit on Zillow and expect the world to be your oyster. You, know, you got to uh, press the flesh. And, and Zoom is, you know, in my opinion, like nine 95% of the real thing, it, it, it's good enough, you know, like we can connect in this manner and yeah, we're not having lunch and a beer and, and whatever. And there's a lot 
lost in translation, but there's enough retained that I think um, people that have wanted to network, you know, during COVID uh, have done so. And, and in some ways to me, it's like a blessing because it's like, wait a minute, we're all liberated from physically being together now, you know, where maybe before it would have been kind of gauche or rude to do a Zoom call with someone in the same zip code, you know, but still you just saved an hour of back and forth. And, you know, it, it, there's just time that is saved by being efficient like this. So, you know, obviously I don't want to spend my whole day on Zoom, but I think that was a great tool, you know, for this past year of me kind of getting started. I, I quit my day job in 2019 and it was really only by like, you know, mid 2020 that I was kind of finding traction and really getting, uh, enough flow going. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to like hire people and delegate because, you know, the flow would overwhelm one human being, no matter how diligent or skilled or whatever. So trying to learn to be a better delegator and trying to learn to be a good boss, which I don't really like that word that much because I just want us to be a team, you know? So I, I always try to foster that team mentality, you know, with our group of maybe some days I'm the coach, but other days I'm the freaking right fielder, you know, I'm out there, you know, with you guys as well. And we're all going to play different positions, you know, on this team, but, you know, I don't like the sort of very hierarchical sense of the world that a lot of organizations kind of instill in us because it can breed resentment. Like, yes, it gives you a ladder to climb, but you're always like envying and looking up and feeling like you're not good enough or whatever. And, you know, I, I don't like that. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, and it's like that too. Like, and I've told people this before. I'm like, you know, there's a way to build your business on the side as you're sort of transitioning. You don't have to just drop everything and go. You can minim mitigate your risk pretty easily these days. You know, when it comes to this, there's a way to do both, right? That's a very smart, well said. Yeah, I would encourage almost anyone listening, unless you have a really big kind of pile of cash to fall back on, you don't need to jump out of the plane and build your parachute on the way down because you know a lot of people go splat when they do that. And then the problem is they're going to think, oh, real estate's risky. It's bad. I, I, I went bankrupt in 2021 when I tried that. So I'm never going to do it again my whole life. It's like, yeah. no, 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 you just kind of did it wrong. Like, you know, baby steps. And I think there's so many kind of side hustles and, and side gigs in real estate that can lead to uh, the full-time thing if that's what you want. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and with that being said, like what, this is always one of my favorite questions, but like based on what you know now, what would your older self tell your younger self? I would say you you can change the world in almost any industry that you're in. So you should not write off whole categories of life and, and business. So for instance, younger me would have looked down on pretty much anyone who was the L word, you know, a landlord. And I thought, you know, there's the, the play rent, like landlords are evil and greedy and bad, you know, and, and they're just associated with greed in general. You know, they're, they're, they're like a step below, you know, used car sales or whatever. It's just a, a parody almost. And so I really thought of it as kind of icky. I mean, I kind of thought of all of business in that way too. I was like, oh, it's just icky. It's for greedy people, you know, or whatever. And it really took me understanding that no, any business can be done in a really ethical way that makes the world a better place or in a really crappy way that makes the world worse. <laughs> you know, like you can do it either way. It's your choice. Um, but, you know, I think property management being a landlord is an area where, yeah, there are a lot of kind of bad actors, underperformers, et cetera, et cetera, which is why the stereotype has developed. 
That's why it's all the more important that good people get into that field and like overperform. You know, people can be happy in their homes and be like, whoa, my landlord's the best. And like, you hear that sometimes too, like, oh, my landlady's awesome. You know, she's great or she's the best. And it, it doesn't take all that much to garner that kind of relationship where it's kind of mutual respect. Um, that has been something I didn't know as a young person. I had this stigma or stereotype or prejudice that it was just like, oh, landlords are bad. And I think what helped get me over that too was thinking in environmentally. I was like, well, it's all well and good if I put solar panels on my own personal home and make it more energy efficient and so forth. But what if I could do that on a hundred people's homes, they would kind of pay for it for me through their rent payments that I'm using to improve the property. And those improvements would lower my operating costs and make me more money. Like oh my God, like this is, this really works. <laughs> like, whoa, you know, and so I've taken great pride in killing off, you know, old oil burning fossil fuel heating systems, you know, in the main buildings we're buying, which are often there heating basements, heating the whole building and stuff. And it really is outdated technology. But again, it's that if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality of like, well, these are actually kind of broke. And especially when they really break and need an HVAC technician to do thousands of dollars of repairs, like you might want to look at heat pumps, you might want to at least look at natural gas or insulating the attic or the basement, there's certain kind of low hanging fruit you know, the insulation jobs we do, it's like 100% ROI per year. You know, I'll spend five or 10 grand on insulation. You can often save that much on heat in one year. So to, to not want to go down that road is just um, uh, uh, self-sacrifice. It's, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. <laughs> I love it. I love your advice. And like now, Dave, like what are you up to in, in your world? Like what's next in the next like year or so for you? Yeah, a couple things. Exciting. Just getting a new property under contract. So that's exciting. You know, right in the downtown of uh, Brunswick, Maine, the, the town where I do a lot of work. And we're planning uh, my first new construction development project. Yeah, because my friend J-Lo in Minneapolis, not the singer J-Lo, this is uh, <laughs> male J-Lo, Jason Lord. We're best buddies from college. He's been doing these syndications, building hundreds of units. I've always said, oh, when I'm full-time, let's do something together. And well, now I'm full-time. I have no excuse. So we're going to do something together in an opportunity zone and um, do about 60 units to start with and, and see where it goes from there. But you're really excited about that kind of challenge. I'm not able to specialize. You know, a lot of people are really good at specializing. They say the riches is in the niches and they niche right down and I get bored too easily. You know, it's like, okay, I've learned this. I, I kind of get it enough to feel comfortable and I want to kind of go on to a new thing. So I've always uh, bought used buildings and now I'm going to build new. So it would be a new, new adventure. I love that, Dave. I love that. Yeah, because you mentioned you're getting deeper into syndication. And for anyone who doesn't know what syndication is, it's basically when, when funds are pulled together so that larger assets can be purchased and rates of return can be brought back to the investors. It's almost like a fund. And so that's super exciting that you're getting into these bigger deals now, which is amazing. Yeah, it, it is. But it's a slow progression. You know, I think the first house we bought was $230,000 and, you know, we're, we're working up and now numbers in the millions don't scare me as much anymore because the math is really the same. There's just an extra zero or two, you know, it's, but it's the same concept of, you know, well, I would say buy low, sell high, but I've never sold and I don't really ever want to sell, which is very different than most real estate investors or syndicators. Yeah. We're kind of constantly trading horses. And I feel like that is kind of a shiny object syndrome. And yes, you get a big gain, especially if you, you know, do a tax-free exchange, but 
you're also leaving money on the table because you're paying brokers like me <laughs> to a pretty big commission. You know, there's taxes to consider that are unavoidable, like transfer taxes. You know, the thing people really don't think about in sales is that you lose the management efficiency that you gained in a year or years with that property. It's like if you have everything running smoothly, it's not generating a lot of like psychic energy for you to deal with it and profit from it. And if you're only getting 9%, just because you think something else might be 10, that transition may make it not worthwhile. You know, so I, I'm big into refinance. I'm doing seven of them right now. <laughs> so like the half of my portfolio is, is you know, going to appraisers and getting refinanced. And that I think is similar to selling, except that you get to keep the building and the money's tax-free automatically. You don't have to do a 1031 exchange. So that's that's my strategy as a buy and hold investor, and I encourage everyone else to to give it some thought. And you know, if, if flipping or wholesaling or whatever strategy helps you get there, you know, great. But to me, those are all jobs. You know, they can be lucrative jobs, but they're hard work, definitely. Whereas buy and hold, you can actually get to like a cruising altitude and you know, relax. That's awesome. I'm pumped to see where you go in the next few years and these major developments that you're working on, Dave. That's awesome. That's awesome. And now for everyone who's listening, like where can they find you and your awesomeness? Yeah. Holmanhomes.com uh, is my website. And, you know, I always give out my personal cell phone. No one ever calls me. So I'll challenge your listeners. I mean, give me a shout if you want. Uh, 207-517-5700. Happy to chat, you know, for a few minutes, learn about you. And if I can be helpful, happy to help. So yeah, those are the best places. Yes. And also too, Dave, you forgot to mention your books. So we got Coffee Smuggler, which Love is the it. true story of Gabriel de Clou, who in 1723 brought coffee to the Western Hemisphere. And it's a story, it's a swashbuckling tale. You know, there's romance, hurricanes, pirates, snakes. You got the whole thing. It is historic fiction based on the true story of Gabriel de Clou, who brought us coffee and it came to the Caribbean and Martinique. You know, everyone thinks it was from Brazil or Colombia or Guatemala, but came to the Caribbean, stolen from King Louis XV. And then more recently, I wrote Cyberfire, which is a thriller about, unfortunately, I mean, some parts of it have already kind of come true, but it's a thriller about cyber attacks against our electric grid that bring down the Southwest electric grid during a record heat wave. So nobody has AC, their you know, elderly people are dying in their homes. It's kind of like a Hurricane Katrina type of situation. And a ragtag band of heroes has to save the day as, as any good thriller would have. So definitely check those out. Going to be writing a biography of an ultra runner that no one's ever heard of called Menson Ernst, who might've been the best runner in human history, ran from Paris to Moscow in 14 days. You know, this was in the you know early 1800s before, uh, you know, sneakers. So pretty cool guy, I think. And, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible writer because it takes me like five years to write a book. I'm too busy with other things. So I need to be more disciplined, plenty of room for improvement. But, you know, those are the side projects that I've been, been up to in writing. I love it. I knew you're super humble. That's why I was like, I know he's not going to plug in his book, but I just want to mention it. So everyone, thank you. Oh. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. They need to get out. Uh, and I've got a box of the cyber fires. If anyone wants a signed copy, uh, shoot me an email, Dave at holmanhomes.com. I'll, I'll send you a copy. Uh, if you can just pay for shipping, you know, we'll, we'll get you out something to read. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. 
Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode.